Hi, this is Ned Siegfried from Siegfried & Jensen. As proud sponsors of BeliefCast, we hope you are inspired by Todd's weekly podcasts, which contain so many courageous stories of recovery and personal growth. Remember, it's not what happened in the past that matters, it's what happens in the future. We invite you all to work hard and be optimistic about your future. Enjoy today's podcast. Welcome back, everybody. This is Todd Sylvester with the Todd Inspires Belief Cast. Thank you once again. I know I say this a lot, but thank you. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you guys tuning in week after week. It is um, something that I'm just so grateful for, and it has helped spread this message that we're getting out to all these people who have come on to share amazing stories. They've been vulnerable, so I'd like to thank my previous guests. I also got, like to give a shout out to our sponsors, Siegfried and Jensen, Wasatch Recovery, Hill Institute, and Veracity Networks. Thank you so much for believing in me. You guys have amazing organizations, and the way you guys live your lives line up with exactly what I want on here is just good, genuine, authentic people who have gone through hard times, and they're now doing good things in their life. And today's no different. Today we're joined by John Red. John, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. You guys, you are in for a treat today. I I mean, every guest I have on is amazing, but this, this one's really close to me. Um, John has come to Wasatch Recovery a few times to share his story. He shares his story a lot. Uh, he's gone through his own battle of addiction. So I'm going to give you a little background on John. Um, he struggled through addictions through his teenage years. Uh, you actually went to a residential treatment center at the age of 19. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, right out the gate um, for alcohol and drug use. Um, after treatment, you end up uh, going to school and you got a degree in psychology from the University of Utah. Yes. Is that correct? Yeah. So yeah, red. I love red, right? <laughs> um, and then you attended the uh, alcohol and drug treatment uh, training program through the Graduate School of Social Work at the U of U as well. After you graduated, you got married, started a beautiful family, um, and then you got an MBA from BYU. Man, you've just done some really amazing things. But after the MBAs, when things kind of started to go in a different direction. Um, you were uh, diagnosed with thyroid cancer in 2003, is that correct? Yeah, advanced stage thyroid cancer. Wow. I mean, I can't even imagine hearing that and how that, we're gonna get to that. And at that time you were prescribed Oxycontin, that led to what we're gonna talk about. Um, 14 years of struggle, you, you, lo you lost basically everything, almost lost your family. Um, but this is the part, in desperation you said a prayer they got answered. And we're going to get into that as well, guys. Um, you're in the process right now. I mean, you're doing great now uh, of opening your own residential treatment facility, which I want to talk more about. You're involved with AA and in, in, in your own personal recovery, and you're on the board of a nonprofit recovery club in your community. Yeah. And you've done several podcasts, and you go and speak. And I mean, the list goes on of all the good you're doing now, John. And I'm just so honored and blessed to have you here today. Thank you. I am so grateful for the opportunity to be here. Thanks. I hope that um, I can say something that will help someone out there. Yeah. Well, I don't have it here, but John just shared a picture of himself after he just got out of detox. And boy, what a difference uh, how he looks today versus then. And it's an amazing, um, the light that shines from you, John. So why don't we start with where did you grow up, John? And tell us about your childhood. Yeah, so where it all started. I am the oldest of six kids. Um, there are five boys in a row and a girl. Um, so, okay. So six of us, I um, grew up, like I have pretty amazing parents. So I grew up, I would say mostly in the Davis County area, so in Salt Lake City. Oh, okay. So a, a little bit of travel when I was younger, um, in that when I was six years old, um, my parents, we moved to France for a couple of years. And I remember when we moved to France, I, I, I didn't know how to speak the language, and I got put in a French school, and I knew that okay. I knew how to say "je m'appelle," which my name is, okay. and then Jonathan for Jonathan, <laughs> and that was it. So it's you know yeah. you could kind of imagine me trying to make friends where oh, hi, yeah. my name is Jonathan, my name like asking for the bathroom. Say. That's all I could say. So <laughs> you had to learn and adapt quickly, yeah. and and I remember at the time I remember being so anxious and so nervous, but. Um, I tell people that that feeling wasn't, it wasn't unnormal for me. It was something that right. I, I'd always just, you know, I remember waking up and thinking, crap, what's coming today? Like, oh, I just really? always thought this world was, other people had kind of gotten this, 
this book or this script on how to live and interact. Yeah. And somehow I'd missed it. And so I was a nervous, anxious kid. I felt like it was tough for me to make friends. It was tough for me to fit in, um, always in my head and just felt like, felt like I wasn't a part of anything. Um, which is kind of interesting because it's, I look back at my life now and I look back at all the things that I was involved in and all the sports and everything else. Um, and the way that I had perceived it all, um, it just felt so heavy. Yeah. If that's the way to say it. Sure, so yeah. at the age of eight, we moved back to Farmington, Utah and, um, lived in Farmington, Utah. My, I was raised in a pretty religious home. Um, and so I always knew what the rules were. Yeah. <laughs> and there, it seemed like there were a lot of rules. And um, I had gotten to a point where I wasn't that good at following the rules. And there's there's some certain events that have happened in my life that at certain times. And like to give you an idea of one of them. Yeah, please. It was a summer between eighth and ninth grade. And I had a friend camp come over and he came over to the house and he brought six Smirnoff mini bottles and Smirnoff's of vodka. And yeah. I learned that night how to pronounce Smirnoff really quick. And he... He drank three of them, I drank three of them, and something happened in that I went out in the neighborhood and suddenly I was able to make eye contact with the girls. That wasn't mm. something I was ever able to do. I thought the people around me thought I was funny. I thought I was funny. And I felt like I'd figured out how other people were fitting into this world. Wow, yeah. It's like that liquid confidence they talk about. Yeah, right? that, You just felt like, courage. hey, I can do this. Yeah, suddenly I belonged. And I was a part of it. And my dad at the time had gotten called to be the bishop. And so I knew the rules and I knew what they were. And I also knew that um, that it was going against the rules. And so I had this dissonance going on inside mm -hmm. that was, you know, I'm doing this and I feel like this is how I'm going to be able to get along. But I also know that, you know, this may also be the reason that takes me to hell. Wow. And at the age of 14, I remember kind of weighing that in my head. And, um, life was, life had just felt so uncomfortable for me yeah. that I finally found something that allowed me to be comfortable in a part of it. And so I kept it going. Yeah. And I think a lot of people listening, John, to that, you know, when we all look back when we were younger, I mean, how important it is we wanted to fit in so bad. We wanted to feel safe in life. And again, I, I, I get what you're saying. I think a lot of people hearing this go, you know what? I can relate with that. I think that's very common. Yeah, you know? it, it, it became the solution to that. Yeah. And so what happened in my life is I just kept that going. And it, it was weekends and then it started becoming during the week. Um, it started just progressing to a point that... Um, it was like my focus and I, mm -hmm. I was a kid who was always able to get decent grades and I held a job. And so when you do that, a lot of the attention is pulled off of you. And so yeah. I could keep my lifestyle going as long as I got decent grades and, and kept a job and, um, that progressed. And I, it was, um, it got to a point where it was so out of hand, um, that it was just shortly after about two days after graduating high school. Um, my dad came to me and just said, look, this is not working. You can't live here anymore. Um, and he, it kind of explained that I was, um, I was out back having a cigarette and he said, you know, I've warned you 50 times. And I, my guess is that's probably a lie. He's probably warned me a hundred. Right. <laughs> um, and, and I, I knew the rules and yeah. I didn't mind breaking them because I thought that I, they didn't they didn't matter to me. And so I kept, I kept going and I moved, I moved out of the house and I thought, man, my life's going pretty well. Like yeah. suddenly living down in Salt Lake, I've got a couple buddies I'm living with. I can keep beer in the fridge. Like, right. Yeah. Eating ramen every night, but that didn't matter. Cause yeah. no one has to tell me what to do anymore. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So that's <laughs> where I was when I was 18 and, um, moved in and I had a, a roommate and my roommate's little brother was doing some hardcore drugs and, um, when I say hardcore, he was an IV user and mm. it was one of those lines that I knew in my mind I'd never crossed. I, um, I had some friends that were doing that and I thought, man, this is just disgusting. There's no yeah. way I'll ever get to this level. Yeah. Like this is ridiculous. And one night he, he was 
home and I came home and it was just the two of us. And after about a 45 minute conversation, um, he just said, John, you know what? You're the one person who gives me the most crap about doing this, but you don't understand. Like if you try this, cause you're doing drugs anyways, but if you try this, you try this. I'll listen to you. Mm. And I, wow. I don't, I don't know why that seemed to make sense to me at the time. Yeah. Um, but at 18 years old, I put a needle in my arm and I, sh- I started injecting drugs. And the way I explain that to people is in my life, I probably had like on a scale of one to 10, if you have like the greatest high being 10, um, and then suddenly you have something that shoots you to a 12 or 13. And and at 18 years old, I suddenly became an IV drug user and I started using drugs every day and injecting drugs every day. And um, I'm currently 6'3", I'm about 205 pounds. At the age of 19, um, my, well, let me tell you the story of what happened there. Yeah, my, please. My mom called me um, one day when I was living down in Salt Lake and said, John, I need to see you. And I knew I was a mess and I didn't want to see her. Um, but I also knew that it was something that I should do. So um, she came down and I wouldn't even let her come into the apartment. We just met like out on the street. Um, and my mom said, John, I've been praying about you. Mm. And um, I want you to know we love you and we're here to help. Wow. What can we do? And I just had this moment of courage where I looked at my mom and I just said, I need to go to treatment. Mm. I said, can you? And by the next day, I was in a detox. And wow. I went to treatment at the age of 19. And I absolutely loved it. I went in with people. I it kind of felt like I was the black sheep of the family. And um, suddenly I just found this herd of black sheep and I found (laughs) all these, all these people I could relate to. Yeah. Right. (laughs) And they, they were being emotionally honest and um, they, the struggles I had of never feeling enough of always feeling like there was something that was kind of empty inside um, and alcohol solved that. Um, These people understood that. And so, I went to treatment and suddenly my life kind of had a little bit of a different purpose to it. And I was 19 years old and I went to treatment down in Arizona and then came home after the residential and started attending meetings and got Mm -hmm. back into school and ended up getting a degree in psychology from the University of Utah. Um, Went and got a, what was the LSAC at the time? So it's the Licensed Substance Abuse Counselor, which is now the SUDC. SUDC, yeah. Yeah. And so earned the earned all the credentialing for that. And um, right after I graduated, I got married, um, started a family, and my life was going really well. And I thought, you know what, I I may need to find a different career path um, so that I can provide for a family. Yeah. Because at the time, there you just you could not get paid doing that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> so I I ended up going on, and I ended up getting in. MBA, a master's in business administration from BYU. So it's kind of the whole, it's usually in the state of Utah, you're either a University of Utah or BYU fan, really, you have degrees from both. Um, (laughs) And I'm so true. Yeah, I'm a Utah (laughs) fan. um, But the the why when I went there, they were a top tier business school. And I, I figured it would look better on a resume to have um, a degree from a different college. So I went and I got a degree um, from Brigham Young University and my life was going really well, but remarkably well. I had graduated, um, I had gotten what I deemed to be a dream job working in medical cells. I was moving down to Las Vegas. This is just shortly after graduation and um, my wife was pregnant with twins Mm. my oldest son was two and wow yeah i thought that like i had arrived yeah right like in that in um a few things happened in my life then one major thing and we alluded to it at the beginning of the podcast but i have a very specific day um which is a day i'll never forget and it is saint patrick's day of 2003 and what happened is we were selling our house. We were moving down to Las Vegas for the job. 
Um, I'd gone to see the doctor before then just to do some blood work and just a checkup. It was the family doctor and um, he called me the night of St. Patrick's Day 2003 at 545 at night. And I was out in front of the house and I, I remember vividly where I was. I remember the conversation and he said, John, we got your test results back and they came back suspicious. Mm. And I had no idea what suspicious meant. Yeah. So, so my response to that was, okay, cool. Like, what does suspicious <laughs> yeah, mean? What does that even mean? Yeah. yeah. And he said, John, you have cancer. And um, oh. I'm going to clear my schedule tomorrow morning and I need you to come in and I need you to clear yours too. Man. Yeah. And so I. Can't imagine hearing that. Yeah. I didn't really know what to think of that. So I went in, I went in the doctor's office the next morning. Um, and asked him like what the prognosis was and what we were looking at. And he said, John, you, you have stage four thyroid cancer. It has metastasized through the lymph nodes in your neck. Um, mm -hmm. we've got to take you in and operate quickly. Um, and I had asked some more questions and through the course of sitting there, I had heard that the worst case scenario is that we give you six months. And I, I will tell you, I was probably in that doctor's office for, I don't know, another 15, 20 minutes. And I don't remember anything else he said. Yeah, I bet. So I, the, the way I relate yeah. this is um, leaving that doctor's office, um, I'd gotten to this point where I felt like I was, you know, that six-year-old kid, day one, school of France all over again, uh. just crippled with fear and anxiety, not knowing what to yeah. to do, how to approach it. Um, my wife was seven months pregnant with our twins. Um, my son was getting ready to turn three. And I, I remember, I remember thinking who's going to raise him. Like, like who's going to be able to be around for him. Yeah. And my wife asked me what the uh, doctor had said. And I, I, she was so nervous and so anxious and I, I wasn't honest with her. I just kind of looked at her and I thought like my job was to, to lift. And so I just said, yeah. you know, we're, we're going to be fine. Like we're, we're going to be okay. And inside I, I was pretty convinced I was dying. Um, we went in for surgery and, um, the surgery was supposed to be just a couple hours and I was supposed to be out of the hospital the next day. Mm -hmm. Um, and some complications happened during the surgery and I was in the, I was in the operating room for the, the majority of the day and I was in the hospital about 10 days. Wow. And as a result of that surgery, um, a branch of my spinal accessory nerve got severed. And um, I remember being in a lot of pain after that happened. And I remember being prescribed OxyContin. And here's, here's the interesting thing for yeah. me, Todd, is that in the last four and a half years, I have tried to think about how much pain I was in and I don't remember exactly how much pain I was in because mm -hmm. I remember all this, all this angst that I had, all this fear yeah. that I had, I, I would take a pill and that would go away. And so I knew from probably the moment I started taking those that I was medicating more for what was going on internally as opposed to what the pain itself what the was. Pain was. Yeah. Wow. And and I thought, but I'm only going to be around another six months. And so this may be the only way I get through that six months. And so um, had the surgery and went to rounds of treatment, um, went to Huntsman Cancer for another surgery after that, um, more treatment. Um, and I had my last surgery in 2007. And I went up to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Um and a couple of remarkable things happened up there. Um, I, I am someone who believes in the power of hope. Mm. And, and I went up to the Mayo Clinic and I met with the surgeon and I met with the doctor and I met with the oncologist and I met with the endocrinologist. Um, and I left that initial appointment feeling like there might be hope. Yeah. And we scheduled a surgery and I went back up for surgery and what happened is after the surgery, they did the scans and they pulled me aside and they said, John, we've got great news. And they said, here it is. We got it. And 
I think for the listeners or the people hearing this, they yeah. would they would say, you know what, that's that's tremendous news. And I remember thinking in my mind at the time, yeah, um, that's what I'm thinking right now. Yeah, <laughs> it. But I remember thinking in my mind, um, oh crap! Now what am I going to do with my life? Oh, yeah. I was hooked on pills. I was drinking a bottle of alcohol a night to fall asleep. Um, I was still high functioning. I was maintaining jobs, working in operating rooms and doing other things. But mm-hmm. um, internally, um, I was a mess. Wow. And then this thought came to me, Todd, which was, you have a master's degree in this. Pull yourself out of it. And what happened in my life is for the next 10 years, I worked to pull myself out of it. Um, And this disease is an interesting thing because I I think the harder we work on it, generally the worse it gets. And the worse it gets, the more effort we put into working on it. And so it got to a point um, with all these jobs where I'd been high functioning, I'd gotten to a point where I couldn't maintain a job. I'd gotten to a point where I was so disconnected to everyone in my life. I was not really connected with my family, with my wife, with my kids. And so obviously your wife has seen you going down this dark yeah. tunnel again. And she's probably obviously bringing it up to you, talking about it. I'm sure that was a very difficult thing for her to watch. Oh, absolutely. It was. And we, we had tried a lot of different things to to change it. So in 2010, we moved from Las Vegas back up to Utah and I'm now living in Farmington. So we, we moved back up and, um, I, it seemed like a really good idea at the time. And I tell people the problem with that was that I brought me with me when I came back up, (laughs) like I should have left me in Vegas. Um, because I, it wasn't the change of scenery that fixed it. Um, and we thought that would work. Uh, my wife and I had another son once I got a cancer-free diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've got four amazing children today. Um, and my youngest, he, kid's incredible, but he he didn't fix it. Like kids, like for right. the listeners, kids don't fix things. Yeah, like, right. <laughs> so, yeah, I'll have a kid and everything will be great. Yeah, yeah. So that was part of the thought <laughs> process uh, for me. And, and so we moved back up to Farmington. And I thought a change of scenery and adding to the family and all of these things would would be what did it. And um, I just became more of a mess um, to a point where, I, like I said, I started losing these jobs. Um, my wife and I had spent years in counseling, and but I was never really getting to the root of the problem, which was that I was, I'm a drug addict. Mm-hmm. And I'm an alcoholic, and that was the one thing I wasn't willing to ju- to address and deal with. I didn't realize that I thought that I had used drugs and alcohol because I had had cancer, and it was the pain, and alcohol was to help me sleep, and the pills were to help with pain, and I thought that those were the solutions to my problems. Yeah. And what I didn't realize was that that is what the problem had become. So it had gotten so bad in my life that there was one point in time where um, my parents and my in-laws were talking and they were trying to figure out if there was a way to put me on permanent disability with the state because they, they never thought I would be able to be a part of this world again. And somewhere inside, I thought they might be right. And so what, what happened is this progressed. And for me, Um, It's an interesting place that you get to when um, it's an interesting place that you get to when you start feeling like there's no hope for you again. And I knew that I was hopeless. Mm. I, I knew I had no business being a husband, being a father, um, it got to a point where I wasn't really even applying for jobs anymore because I knew I'd just lose it. Yeah. And I had a really specific time in my life. It was the summer of 2017. And for Christmas, the year before my in-laws had given like their side of the family, 
um, a vacation in Newport Beach, California, mm. in the summer. And so, yeah. I I love Newport Beach. Yeah, we me too. That place is amazing. Yeah, I was yeah. I was so excited to go, <laughs> and um, I was of course nervous because I was thinking, you know, I don't want to get sick, and you. If you're leaving, you have to plan what you're taking with you and if you're going to be able to slip away and get a drink and all these yeah. other things. And um, so those thoughts were going through my head and I was thinking and trying to plan what I was going to do at Newport when we went down to Newport. And my wife pulled me aside and um, I got uninvited on the vacation. And I, my wife's actually heard me tell this story enough times where... It's kind of funny, a couple of years ago, she's like, John, we got to talk. And I said, what's what's going on, hon? And she goes, well, you know, you think you got uninvited. She goes, you were actually never invited to start with. <laughs> she goes, I just had to tell you. Because you were thinking you were coming, so I, she had to say something. Yeah, I, she, <laughs> she had to let me know. She had to, everyone else knew, but she had to clue me in. Oh, and I am, awesome. it turns out she was 100% correct with that. Yeah. So um, <laughs> I... I remember my, I remember they left and they went on the vacation and I was home alone and I was with the dog and I, um, I, I had just gotten to a really dark place. Um, you know, and it, some of the listeners may understand that, but there's a place you get to, you know, when it's early in the morning and it feels like your conscience comes calling on you. And your conscience just looks at you and says, you know, man, what, what happened to you? Yeah. Like you used to be a father. Yeah. You used to hold a job. And one of the ways I explain that is that, um, life was so heavy. Like it, 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 it had never been that heavy before. And when you wake up in the morning, your only thought really becomes is how do I get through today? And how do I get there? I just need to get through today and it's going to get better. And then you wake up the next morning and life is heavier. Yeah. You're like, I didn't fix it by going to bed. No, yeah. no. And and you almost get upset that you woke back up. Yeah. Um, and, and I was at that spot and I, I had felt like I was out of options. Um, and so it was an interesting thing that I did. I went through the house and I locked all the doors and I pulled the blinds and I don't know why I did that. I'm not, I was not at a place where people came to visit me. Right. I, I was the guy who would suck the life out of you if you were around and just talk about my problems. And yeah. um, I was talking to someone about this one time and he said, yeah, you were like the Dementor, like from right. Harry Potter. He's like, nobody goes to visit the Dementor. <laughs> That's a good you know? point. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, touche. Like it was, it was perfect. It was, yeah. it was a perfect analogy. But also sad though. Oh. I mean, think about that. Like that is not a, good like you're saying you're in this dark abyss hopeless that is a scary place to be for anybody yeah it, I, and um i think i think one of the gifts i've been given in my sobriety is that i i've not forgotten about that and i was yeah i was in that place and i felt like i only had one option left um and i went down to a room in the basement and i went into this room and i sat on the bed and I actually locked the door and it's it's so strange that I'd lock the doors to do this and um the only thing I could think of doing at that time was saying a prayer and so I wow I put my head down and I just simply said God if there's if there's a way out of this please help me and to this day in my life that's the most sincere prayer I've ever said and some remarkable things happened. Um, two days after that prayer, the job I was doing my best to hold on to um, asked me not to come into work anymore. My wife came home from Newport Beach and she had this resolve on her face that I'd never seen. Mm. And she just looked at me and said, John, I, I don't even care if we stay married or get divorced anymore. You, you have to leave. Um, my kids, my son was 17, my twins were 14, my youngest was nine. Mm. I, I couldn't even get them to make eye contact with me. And I, I went up to my parents' house to ask them for help. And 
they essentially said, John, we'll help you, but we're not going to help you your way anymore. And it wasn't even a day after that I had a chance to go to treatment. And what, what I'm a believer of today is that sometimes when I feel like my world is falling apart, it's God's way of bringing it together. Mm. But when I'm in the middle of it, I can't see it. Can't see it, right? Because because I would have told you everything that was important to me at that point in time had fallen apart. Yeah, you're losing things. The whole foundation had crumbled. Yeah. Not realizing that that's what had to happen for it to come together. I I believe that if I would have held on to a job, I wouldn't have gone into treatment. If my wife would have told me that I could have stayed there, um, that I would have felt like I had to work on that, and I wouldn't have gone into treatment. Um, if my parents would have bailed me out of my problem, I wouldn't have gone into treatment. And I needed all of these things to happen to become willing to get help. Yeah. So I, I remember the morning I was going into treatment. I am. And I remember looking, um, I was leaving the house and I was in the kitchen area and my twins were there and it was right before school started. And I, I told, um, my son, Charlie, he's one of the twins. I said, dad's going to treatment. Can I get a hug? And he, he came up and he just patted me on the arm and he said, good luck, dad. And he turned and walked off. And my daughter, who was across the kitchen, um, looked at me and waved and said, you know what, dad, I'm late for the bus. Mm. And for some reason it hit me in that moment, um, how my kids had been affected by, by this disease. I, I wasn't a guy who used with them. I never told right. him to crack a beer out of the fridge. Right, like, right. I'd always been really sneaky, but I, I wasn't present. I wasn't there. I wasn't a part of it. And it was yeah. literally that morning was when it, the effect of my use had, and how it had affected my family had totally dawned on me. And that's when I started seeing it. And so I went into treatment and I remember telling the counselor there about all of my education and how smart I thought I was. Um, and she looked at me and she said, you know what, the, you know what you're going to have to do here. And I was thinking she was giving me like some special assignment to work on the other people in there or something along those lines. And she just looked at me and said, John, you're going to have to forget all that bullshit. You think, you know, because none of it has helped you. She says, you're going to have to humble yourself and get to a point where you're willing to do this the right way. Yeah. And I, I heard it and I felt it. And so I was in treatment and I got to a point where I was willing to, to do whatever they asked. And I, I didn't know what I was going to get out of it. I just, what I knew is I didn't want the life I had. And if there was a way for me not to have that life, I was willing to do it. Yeah. Um, I was in treatment on my 20 year wedding anniversary. And so if any listeners are looking for good ideas on how to spend a 20, um, I wouldn't recommend that one. Don't do it that way. Yeah. yeah right. Don't do it that way. However, my wife came in, um, and the night of our 20th wedding anniversary was the first night we had a couple's processing session and she came in that night. Um, and, and she told me it was the best anniversary gift I'd ever given her. Yeah. I was just going to say that, like. Is we laughed at it a little bit, but man, it was probably the best best gift she could ever get. Yeah, she was. She, she gave me a hug. She had tears, and we went into the counselor's office. And the counselor um, asked Sunny what it is she wanted to see going forward, and what it was that um, she wanted to see out of me. And Sunny looked at him and said, "You know what? I I want John never to relapse or use again." And this counselor looked at her and kind of laughed and said that he can't promise that. But what John can promise is that he'll be honest and transparent. Mm. And if he's honest and transparent going forward, you'll see this long before it ever happens. Yeah. And again, there are times where you hear something and there are times where you just know it's truth and you actually feel it. Yeah. Um, and I was able to look at my wife at that time and make a promise. Um, I was walking her to the door after this and my wife, um, asked me some really tough questions. 
and I took a breath and I got honest and I was transparent with her. And um, two things happened at that moment. Um, I watched her drive away and I thought there was a possibility I was never going to see my wife again. And the other thing that happened um, was that I felt like this backpack, like all these secrets that I'd carried around that had to be 200 pounds, I was finally able to set down and I felt like there was a way through it. I am, in my life today, I am a, a huge believer in truth. Yeah, I'm a huge believer in, yes. in the importance of being honest with people. Um, I, I have found that uh, the best sleeping, the best sleeping med I've ever taken is honesty. I, I used to take Ambien every night for like 16 <laughs> years. That. Now I don't take Ambien. I, I just, that. I just get to be an honest person today. And it's, that. it's not, and I'm, I'm not here professing that I'm the most honest person that you'll ever meet. I'm, I'm far from it, but I strive for it. Yeah. Like my wife will tell you, yeah. like there's one aspect of my life I'm not honest with. I have a hard time being honest about the lawn. So my wife will ask if like, <laughs> she'll say, John, has yeah. the lawn been watered? And I'll think, well, you know what? We've got this magic green box on the side of the house that says Rainbird that I have no idea how to work. So I just say, <laughs> yes, of course. And whether it is or not, I don't know. You don't know. Yeah. yeah but, but that's about <laughs> the extent of it today. Yeah. Like the that's things awesome. that matter. And I, you know, I kept hearing while I was in treatment that we're only as sick as our secrets. Yeah. And today, thankfully, I'm a guy that doesn't have secrets. Yeah. I have some things that I keep private, and I think we're allowed our privacy. Sure. But I don't have secrets, um, and I don't have those things that keep me sick. And so I, people oftentimes will go to treatment, and they'll go to treatment to get clean. And I am a believer that you have to go to treatment to take out the garbage. Mm -hmm. You have to go there to get rid of the secrets, to get rid of the things that yeah. you've never been willing to talk about. Yeah. Because if you're going to build a foundation in recovery, um, you have to make sure that foundation is solid and yeah, in place. Absolutely. So yeah. I, so, so that night, it's your 20 year anniversary. She comes in for a family session. And then uh, on the way to the car, you get real with her. You share some things you've been holding back. Yeah. And and at that moment, you because of what you shared, you didn't know if she was you'll ever be with her again. Correct. But yet, at the same time, felt this big, you know, mountain off your shoulders all of a sudden. Yeah. This this weight, and so it's yeah. it's a hard thing to explain because it's it's <laughs> not one of those things where I want to explain to people. Yeah, it was great. It wasn't great. Yeah. But. I got to feel what it might be like to be free. Yeah. And so I got an opportunity to feel that. And I, I made a commitment that I was going to be honest and transparent going forward. Wow. Well, and obviously you're still with your wife. So yeah. she didn't leave. No. Um, but I would imagine as hard as that was for to hear whatever you had told her, you guys worked through that. And she probably at deep, deep down was like, well, I'm glad finally you're just being honest. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And that's, I, th <laughs> I think, you know, I think that's where we get to is we have these secrets and we think no one else knows. Like, because right. we haven't told them the details. When, yeah. when everybody knows, it's, know. it's, they know something. Yeah, something's like, off. And, and yeah. I've helped a lot of people get into treatment and they'll say, well, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to tell like, my wife or my kids that I've been drinking. Mm -hmm. um, and I did, that was my reason too. I didn't want anyone to know that I had been, I didn't want to get honest with my family. Yeah. I didn't want my, my neighbors to know like what the real problem was. Yeah. Right. And somewhere I didn't even know if that was the extent of the problem. I always thought the problem may have something to do with cancer or health or different things. Yeah. Um, and what happened was that I got willing to go in and address the problem. And now I, my whole neighborhood knows it's like <laughs> it, everyone in my life knows. I actually go to my, we live in Farmington and I go to Farmington okay. high school okay. um, twice a year. And I, and I talk to them about addiction and alcoholism That's and awesome. it's, it's my favorite thing to do. Cause I yeah. go in there and I ask them what an alcoholic and a drug addict looks like. And they'll tell me, all these things that they expect, like yeah, right. covered in tattoos, haven't bathed in a week, like 
Yeah. And I look at him and I say, you know what? You're all right. Like you're correct. And my name's John Red, and I'm a drug addict and an alcoholic. <laughs> and about like, yeah, half of them will like hide their eyes and yeah. and I just bring <laughs> yeah. them back to it. And yeah. I think that one of the things that I try to do here, I I tell people, I kind of insist on recovering out loud. I um I suffered in silence yeah. for so many years that if I can recover out loud and it helps somebody think maybe I can get into recovery. It's all worth it. Yeah. Well, and that's why we're talking today. Yeah. John, and that's why you're sharing today because I'm hoping anyone listening to this who's struggling will do just that. Yeah. Know? Well, I do too. It's. And I love the part. I mean, I love your whole story, but I love the part where, I mean, you got the, the, the shades drawn, you got the doors all locked and you go down in that room and, you know, I didn't know that what you were going to say as you were saying that. I'm like, oh, crap. Well, you know, and then you got down and you said a prayer, the most sincere prayer you've ever said in your life. Yeah. I mean, wow. I I had this thought that I had to get right or I had to get worthy to be able to ask for help. So for for a long time, I thought, man, if I can get two days sober, I can ask for God's help. Or if I can get a week yeah. or if I can change this, then I'll be okay to ask for help. And what I realized, and I realized this by looking back on my life is I realized I had no way of getting there without his help. Yeah. So I, the thing that was so important to me is that I realized that, um, God will meet me wherever I'm at. Yeah. I just need to open the door. I just need yeah. to ask. What a great message that people hearing this, they'll, he'll meet you where you're at. Yeah. Yeah. It's Ooh, it, that's and, powerful. And I had to get to such desperation that I was literally out of options. And when I became out of options, I realized that I, I went to that as the option and that was the best option I could have gone to because these remarkable things happened in my life. And at the time I couldn't see it at the time. I thought everything literally was falling apart. And I didn't realize that it had to fall apart to come together. Yeah. And that's happened in my life since. It's been, it's been pretty beautiful. And so I, I was leaving treatment and I was talking to one of the counselors and he said, John, if you want to stay sober, you're going to go get a job at Costco or Walmart or somewhere. And I, mm -hmm. of course, was referring to the degrees I had and the work experience. And this yeah, was you've seen my degrees. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> it. This is the best I'd felt in 14 yeah. years. So, you know, yeah. 45 days sober, I'm ready to conquer You're the world again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we see that, right? Sure. And so I am. Um, <laughs> and he said, No, Johnny goes, I don't think you're hearing me. He said, what I'm telling you is if you want to stay sober, you're going to go get one of these jobs. And I heard that. And I realized that my job right now was to get sober. And so I got a job where I could check in. I could get an honest day's work done. I could check out and I could leave the job there. Mm. Um, I remember getting the job at Costco and I had applied for a job within a couple of days of leaving Costco and I was going to IOP, which I recommend for people. It's, you know, you go to residential and you do the heavy lifting, and, yeah. but it's nice to have the support when the rubber meets the road, for when sure. you get out. And yeah. it, the IOP I went to was remarkable for me. And so I, and IOP stands for outpatient. Um, so I went to an IOP and it's Costco. It scheduled me the night of the IOP. And I thought, okay, great. Now I don't have to go to IOP because... <laughs> Treatment told me to get this job. I got this job. No, and yeah. um, the therapist said, no, John, you're going to have to tell him that you need these nights off um, or you're going to have to find another job. And I, I, I was so excited for the job I had because it had been so long since somebody wanted me to work there. Yeah. It had been so long since I felt like I could show up. And I was so excited and... I went in and I spoke with the my manager and told her that I needed um, a couple nights off. And she explained to me that they never do that for new people and she's going to have to get me with the general manager. And all of these thoughts were going through my head of what am I going to tell her? Like, 
And I remembered that I'd promised to be honest and transparent. So I went in and I sat across the desk and Sandy said, John, I understand you need these nights off. We don't do this. What's going on? Yeah. I looked at her and I said, Sandy, I'm an alcoholic. And I'm trying to learn how to be a father and a parent again. And I need to get to these classes so I can do that. And she came up from behind that desk. She gave me a hug. Oh, she said, we will never schedule you those nights. She said, people come in here and they're never honest. She says, you were honest and I can feel it. We're with you. Back to the honesty. Yeah, there's there's such power in that. There's so much power in it. And it's, I was somebody, as I explained, like just always anxious. Like I was always afraid that if if people knew me, they they absolutely wouldn't like me. Like yeah. I, I was trying to figure out what people wanted to hear as opposed to right. just telling people what's really going on. Yeah. Like it, so it, the honesty aspect became this beautiful thing for me, and that was just another lesson in honesty. <laughs> that is amazing. That's so cool. I've seen, you know, with some of my clients too that I've told them the same thing. When you go for that job interview, just be honest. Just let them know where you're at. It's okay. You know, and if they don't like where you're at or what you've been through, it's maybe not the best fit anyways. Yeah. You know, and so I'm so glad that you said that. That's powerful. Yeah, they, they worked around that, and there was – I was a guy who, um, like I had just gotten so low that I can sit here on this couch today and tell you I don't remember the last thing I drank. And I don't remember the last drug I used. I remember um, each day blending into the next. Yeah. And it just constantly felt like hell. And I, I got this opportunity to live a new life. And I got this opportunity to be around... Um, to be a father and to be a, be a husband and to be an employee. Um, I have one night in my life that um, I tell people is um, the, the best night of my life. And I, I'd like to tell you what that was. I, Please. I had worked at Costco, I worked at Costco for about seven months after treatment and, or after residential. And it was towards the end of that. And I had, gone to treatment and my sobriety dates in August of 2017 and I had been sober for my youngest son's birthday and I had been sober on Thanksgiving and Christmas and my wife's birthday and my oldest son's birthday and my birthday so all these yeah. major holidays yeah. and the last one that was coming up was um, my twin's birthday and they were turning 15 and they wanted to have a birthday party at Classic Skate and for me um Classic skate, if if you're not familiar with classic skate, it's a roller skating rink with arcades yeah, and yeah. bad pizza and <laughs> it's really so loud true. and a lot of germs yeah, and strobe lights. Going on. Smells. And, uh, yeah. And um I tell people it's like quite literally almost my version of hell. Actually actually I think hell might sound funner than classic <laughs> skate for a guy like me. Some people love it. Yeah, so sure. So my kids wanted to go to classic skate. The twins wanted to go to classic skate for their birthday. And I was working on sobriety and trying to rebuild my life. And I didn't have any money. I didn't have any gifts for them. Uh, I could afford a couple boxes of Little Caesars pizza. And I remember pulling up to Classic Skate. And I remember thinking, man, this is going to be the roughest night. Like, I cannot believe this is like yeah. what my life's come to. Yeah. And this thought came to me. I work a 12-step program, and my sponsor always used to say to me, John, take your higher power with you. And I I have this little prayer that I say sometimes, which is yeah. um, simply, God, they tell me you're not going to give me more than I can handle. But I think you've got a little bit too much confidence in me because <laughs> I'm not handling this one very well. Could sure use your help. Yeah. And... Um, said something to that effect, grabbed the pizza and walked in the classic skate. Um, I put a smile on my face and I um, put on some roller skates and I started going around the rink with the kids for about three hours. I, um, I'm not super coordinated, so I, <laughs> and I'm 6'3". Big 6'3 so guy rolling yeah. around on skates, can't do it very well. No, I tell people <laughs> it's kind of like, just picture a giraffe going around the rink in strobe lights because that was, that was the way it worked out for me. That's awesome. Um, 
and I'm going to tell you, I had such a great time that night. And I, I went home and I went to bed. And um, first my son, Charlie, came in and woke me up. Or I wasn't asleep yet, but he right. came in. And um, Char- Charlie came in and said, Dad, that, that was the best birthday I've ever had. And then 30 wow. minutes later, his twin Molly came in. And she said, Dad, that was the best birthday I've ever had. No. Wow. Why that was so significant for me is my twins had turned 15, and it was the first time I was ever sober on their birthday. I um, I wasn't expecting to see them turn one. Mm-hmm. And when they turned 15, I got an opportunity to be sober, and I realized... I realized the impact of just being sober and being present, being a part of their life. Yeah. Um, I used to put so much value on the gifts and I used to put so much value on other things. And what it did is it changed, changed the way I looked at parenting. It changed yeah. my whole beliefs around that, which is yeah. just be present, show be up, be there, be there and love them. Yeah. And so that's, that's what I try to do today. And, and that oh, night was the night that I learned that. And so I've, I have this remarkable life today. I have kids that I'm so close to, a wife who is just amazing. I have friends and family and people in my life that um, I never thought was possible. And for me, it's a matter of just being willing to show up and be present. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. So amazing. What yeah. is that your your life story is just blows my mind. It's, you know, I mean, it just does. I, and I know you probably hear this a lot from people, but again, I, I what I love about your story, John, and that we can go through we can go through hell, but we can we can prevail but we can't do it alone. No. Right? You know, you can do it, but you got to have some help. Yeah, I, I tried it alone for yeah. 10 years. And I love how you rely on your higher power. You know, I, a lot of listeners, you know, you can call it God, whatever your yeah. higher power may be, universe, energy, you know, and, and John takes his higher power with him. It's, it's He brought him today, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, and I, I love that. I was so nervous about coming here and I <laughs> said this little prayer out in my car uh-huh. on the way in, which has just helped me out. Yeah. Like again, like I don't know if I can handle this, so sure could use you. And I'm I'm grateful for that today. Like the, yeah. the whole spiritual yeah. connectedness and the spiritual con, con connection that we have, I think that we get that connection with other people. Um, and it's also just a connection that we can walk through and that we can feel. Yeah. Well, I've sure felt that listening to your story today. You know, I know you're doing a lot of good things in your life now, and I know it's very fulfilling. And the best part about it, like you said, is you have a connection with your wife and your children. Yeah. You know, and it's strong and it's good. I def, you know, I know it's not perfect, but man, it's it's something that you were neglecting early on, and uh, that's the uh, to me that's the most beautiful part about your story. Yeah, I well, that. and I I think so too, and I think that. You know, I I had heard multiple times before I got sober that, you know, if if you loved them more, they're not important enough to you. And Mm -hmm. there was nothing in this world I loved more than my wife and kids. But I'm an alcoholic and I was in my disease and I wasn't able to be present. I I wasn't able to show them how much I loved them. It was, I tell people that I... It is one of the things that I feel about this disease is it's a disease of knowing better but not being able to do better. And I always knew better. But I was just trying mm-hmm. simply to survive when I look back at it. Yeah. And it didn't allow me to do better. Yeah. Where today, I get an opportunity to do better. Yeah. I and it. I don't take that for granted. I love it. It's beautiful. You know, John... I mean, you've shared obviously some really good advice along with your story. If there's someone listening to you right now who is struggling and they're in that dark space you talked about that you were in, they feel hopeless. 
What could you tell them right now that would help them? That there's hope. That there's a way to get well. That you're not a bad person. That you're sick. And you've got some people and who will help you heal. Yeah. Um, reach out. I, I tell people all the time, start with a prayer. Mm. I don't, to me, I don't care if people call it higher power, God or heavenly father. Like, I don't believe he cares. Yeah. I think what he cares about is that his kids are reaching out to him. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's, it's start there, reach out. Yeah. And then whatever you're directed to do, take some action. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. It's great advice. Yeah, that's that's it, how it worked for me, and I've seen yeah. it work that way for countless others. Yeah, um, I thought I was so alone, and what I didn't realize is that there were so many people that cared, so many people that were willing to do anything in the world to help, and all I had to do was just start taking some action in that direction. Yeah. Wow, love it. That's great advice. Um, if someone wants to reach out to you, John, and they want to learn more about you or, you know, follow you or get to, you know, if they want to reach out to you and ask you a question, what's the best way for them to do that? I have um, a couple ways. Okay. Um, one, I'm on Facebook. So it's just John Red on Facebook and Todd and I are friends. So if yeah. you're following Todd, you can link to me easily through that. Um, Great. And then the other, the other way is, I'll just give you my cell phone number, which is Beautiful. 801 six zero two seven four two nine i have a beautiful life today where i've helped a lot of people get help mm -hmm. i am i'm not somebody who really cares where someone goes for treatment yeah as long as they go to a place that's the right fit for them right and so i i am kind of all in and trying to help people <laughs> Like literally all yeah. in and trying to help people get help. Oh, I know that. Um, because I had some people willing to do that for me. Yeah. And they they brought me alongside and they, they helped me in this process. And I, I, I believe in my heart today I have a huge debt. I've got a debt that I owe this world. Yeah. Because I, I have a life today that is beyond my wildest dreams. And I get to keep it if I'm willing to pay back. Wow. So... I try to pay back. Love it. Yeah, I really do believe, you know, believe that sometimes we get into this mindset of, you know, I'm expecting something from life and I know no life's expecting something from me. Just like what you said. And I love that. And you know, every time you've come to speak here at Wasatch, I was saying this earlier. I mean, the, the clients talk talk about it for weeks. They're not a dry eye when they leave your story and you really are doing a lot of good, John. And I mean, just sitting here, hearing this first person sitting here with you today, face to face, I'm the one who's blessed. I'm the one who is, and we talked about this before, and I'm so grateful just for the way you live your life. And it, your life actually, it, you're the, you, the, the example of hope. And you just prove that if we're, we're down and out, we can, we can make it through this. And if we'll do our part in reaching out and asking for it. And so the power of prayer, yeah, and it's huge, huge. huge. And uh, anyway, I just, I love you, John, man. And I just, it's been an honor to have you on the show today. Thank you. I appreciate it. And if you're out there and you're listening, just know you don't have to do this alone. Yeah. There's, I, I don't know how to do it alone. Yeah. Like reach out. Yeah. We're here it. to help. We're here to help. And and I would I would suggest that anyone listening to this right now, if you if you're not struggling, but if you have a son or a daughter, a cousin, a niece, a nephew, a sister, a brother, a mom, or a dad, a friend who is struggling, send them this episode. And if you, because you know what I found, John, a lot of people have a hard time going up to someone who's struggling. They're not sure what to say. Yeah. And I say, you know what's a great way to break the ice? Send them a text with the link to this session, to this episode of this belief cast with John Red, and say, "Just listen to this, and then let's talk." I'm telling you, it breaks the ice, it opens it up, and I I'm telling you, you'll have some dialogue with this person who's struggling, and and just like John said, check them out on Facebook. You can give them a call at eight zero one six zero two seven four two nine. There's his cell number. He will help you. He will talk to you. If you do actually need some treatment, he will find the right fit I'll for I'll help him. you find the right resources. Yeah. I'm, I'm not 
aligned right now. Like, and I, mm-hmm. even though I've worked at other places, like for me, it's just a matter of getting people. I, I believe that, and this may be too simple, but I believe that like my responsibility is to try to help God's kids. And when I do that, he seems to take care of me. So as long as I'm willing to try to do that, yeah. all of my needs are provided for. Yeah, I love it. What a great message. You know, I've won- I, I say this to my clients a lot. If you master the first, first 11 steps of AA, you will drink again. If you master step 12, you'll never touch another drop. You live step 12 so beautifully, John. Thank you for being who you are, and thank you for taking some time to be with us today. Yeah, right on God. Thank you. You bet. There you go, folks. I told you this was going to be amazing. Um, that was a fast hour. I mean, that, that felt like 10 minutes. <laughs> for you, maybe. No, yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> I, and people will agree, man. I told you guys this was going to be amazing. Like I said, please share this with people that you know. I love you guys so much. Thank you for tuning in week after week. I, I can't thank you enough. If you were here, I'd give you a big hug. So I love you. And until next time, guys, take care. Thanks again, John. Thank you. Thank you.